Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. This is part two of our podcast coverage of a panel discussion titled Wrath Goes Viral. The event, focused on infectious disease, was the first of our Science in the Seven Deadly Sins series. In part two, the panelists examined the factors involved in preventing outbreaks from becoming pandemics. The SARS virus and the SARS-like virus that recently appeared in Saudi Arabia provide important case studies for understanding diagnostics, containment policy, and the high stakes of outbreak management in a world of commonplace international travel. To orally orient you, the first person you'll hear will be moderator David Quammen, an award-winning writer. Breaking into Quammen's introduction will be Dr. Ian Lipkin, a pioneer in the field of virology, Marin McKenna, a renowned science writer, and Captain Daniel Jernigan from the Center for Disease Control, in that order. Captain Jernigan will be the first responder. Okay, I'll let the experts take it from here. Enjoy. Okay, so we have these viruses that are spilling over from animals into humans. And in some cases, they cause no symptoms at all. In some cases, they seem to be, become harmless passengers. Like, there's, there's a one, wonderfully, gruesomely named virus called simian foamy virus. And as far as we know, unless you guys have something more recent than what I know, it causes no symptoms in humans. It spills over from macaques, a kind of monkey in Southeast Asia, and gets into people through contact, for instance, at monkey temples where people are feeding um, these monkeys. And um, scientists studied this virus despite the fact that it causes no disease because it's an indicator of contact close enough to transfer viruses from macaques into humans, and that could also result in the, in the transfer of a really nasty virus. So, so some of these viruses have no, um, no clinical effect on humans. Some of them cause outbreaks that are, that are gruesome and relatively short, like Ebola, and it's relatively easy to contain. It kills a lot of people, but it doesn't ride airplanes. It doesn't come out of Africa and kill except people in, in other parts Except of the in people, because there have been people who have actually come back to Europe, for example, or to the United States who have been infected. And so it can happen. Well, but only one in, with Ebola, right? And two, right. And two with Marburg. I'm not saying and it's common. Three I'm just saying it Lassa, can happen. And three with Lhasa. Okay. Occasionally happen. it ha can happen that somebody rides an airplane. And the person, with flu. the person who rode an airplane with <laughs> Ebola in her body was on a stretcher being medevaced to, um, to uh, Switzerland. But I take your point that it, it's, there are no absolutes in this field. But so some spill over and cause, kill you know, a few dozen or a few hundred very unfortunate people in Africa. Some spill over and kill a hundred pig farmers in Malaysia. Some, uh, like SARS, which I hope we talk about, um, spill over and ride airplanes rather well and get to Toronto and kill people there and get to Beijing and Singapore and Hanoi and kill people there and then either stop or are controlled. And I think it's fair to say that SARS was, was controlled. It didn't burn out. And then some seem to be unstoppable, like the influenzas. And uh, the pandemic strain of HIV got everywhere. Um, what is it in terms of the evolutionary biology, the evolutionary potential of these viruses, or any other factor you want to mention, that most determines which ones are going to be local, terrifying but local, which ones are going to be epidemic, and which ones can, can potentially become pandemic? We, we talk about animals and humans, and then humans to humans, but 
there's a role of technology in the spread of, trans of disease that is probably as important for some of these pathogens as, as you know, just that human-animal interaction. I mean, with SARS, I spent five weeks in Taiwan at the peak of that, and what we were seeing there was an extreme explosion of SARS cases, mainly because of what happened in the hospital. And so the same with Ebola in Uganda and other places where if you can get that virus, that infected patient, to a place where the technology is such that it allows for it to be transmitted. Uh, we're talking about West Nile virus, uh, before flu, I was in the hospital infections group at CDC, and we had a, um, a patient, we had four cases of encephalitis at a hospital. Uh, we were trying to figure out what it was. Finally, it came up as a, it turned out to be West Nile virus, and we thought, well, how on earth did these for transplant patients get that. And it turned out that a person that had been infected but had not really had symptoms uh, was driving her car, was in a car wreck, uh, and died and had become a, uh, um, a donor. Uh, so she died, she became an uh, organ donor, but the uh, period right before she died, she received almost 30 units of blood. So a technology that was used, life-saving technology, we tested every blood unit, and in the last blood unit that she got, we found the West Nile virus in it. And so that was actually a demonstration that that unit of blood could get into a person. Those organs then just become really vehicles for carrying West Nile virus-infected blood. She was never really infected, uh, and then those organs were then put into people. And so you can see where all of these different technologies, I think the, right now we're seeing aspergillus meningitis, because of technology, uh, that there are things, if that virus or that bacteria gets to the right place and then technology is there to allow for it to be spread, that, that's the thing that we want to be most aware of. Uh, and with hospitals in Uganda, working on infection control is probably going to be the best thing to prevent Ebola from getting out and causing worldwide problems. Now there's, there's another very simple piece of technology that we take for granted now, but according to some accounts, was perhaps very important in the early spread of HIV, of the pandemic strain, and that's the hypodermic needle. That was being used in Central Africa to um, inoculate people with various kinds of medicines, including um, medicines to deal with malaria. And there weren't very many needles, so they were being reused. We're talking about the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, and I think it's a, there's a, a, a fine writer named Jacques Pepin who's published a book called The Origins of AIDS, who he's not the only person who has developed this hypothesis, but he explores it and brings some, some new data to the idea that uh, French colonial doctors injecting malaria medicine and um, medicines uh, to fight against various kinds of, uh, of uh, venereal diseases, reusing needles may have been an important early factor in, in multiplying um, the HIV infection prevalence. Um, do you all find that plausible, persuasive? I, I find it very plausible. And I would add to that that in many villages you have inoculists who give vitamin B injections without any sort of precautions whatsoever for sterility. The other point that I've heard is promoting this in, in a big way was actually the smallpox eradication campaign. The introduction of needles in a very, very broad way which sort of made it much more acceptable to have these sorts of interventions. So I've heard that proposed as well. But I think there's no question but the most efficient way 
to infect somebody with these, with these you know, sexually transmitted diseases that we see, for example. Or things like uh, hemorrhagic fevers is, in fact, with parenteral injections. That is to say, intravenous mm -hmm. injections. Mm -hmm. If you look at <clears throat> the SARS outbreak in, like, in Hanoi, not a lot of cases actually there in, in the initial spread. Uh, but they didn't have a lot of ventilators. You know, they had a lot of open windows. Uh, people, patients were spe separated very far. But in those places, had what with what we call flailed intubations. That is, where a resident and somebody else could not get somebody intubated, and then this uh, thing sprayed everywhere. Flailed intubations. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to put no. a tube oh, down. I just, I just wanted to emphasize that to make sure everybody <laughs> caught that with their ears and, and I, registered that image. But but there were but yeah. there certainly were people we described as super spreaders, who released large amounts of virus, sometimes in, in feces as well as Okay, again, let, let me secretion. emphasize that for everybody. Super spreaders, the, the sort of the typhoid Marys of, of these viral diseases. Except that typhoid Mary was asymptomatic. These people were symptomatic. They had severe disease. And there was one area in Hotel Metropole where there was a corridor where somebody was very sick and, you know, everybody sort of came through this corridor was at very high risk for mm -hmm. infection. So we do see things like that. And, and we don't really understand yet enough about the host, that is to say ourselves, to understand why some of us, uh, we understand some of this. I mean, there's some people who have certain kinds of immunodeficiencies uh, who are more likely to become infected if they're exposed. But we don't fully understand all the factors that contribute to things like whether or not you become a super spreader, whether or not you become diseased, if you get exposed, uh, and and now with with the uh, the introduction of, of inexpensive genome sequencing, whole genome sequencing for humans and other animals, I think we will understand much more about that shortly. You know, I think in SARS is there's two great examples of both how much difference technology makes, as you mentioned, and I, it's a, such an unscientific. Thing to say, but I think we have to admit it when it comes to the control of diseases, the, the sort of role that luck and random chance play. I mean, one of those people from the Metropole Hotel went to Hanoi, checked into the French hospital, created a fantastic outbreak in that hospital, closed the entire hospital. Um, and that was one of the better hospitals in Hanoi because it was a private hospital. They didn't know he was coming. They didn't yet know that SARS was advancing. One person from the French hospital went to Bangkok. Carlo Urbani, the World Health Organization doctor who stayed in the hospital to help them deal with their outbreak until he realized he himself was getting sick. He fled to Bangkok for treatment, um, was tr treated by the CDC doctors there. They knew he was coming. They adequately contained, the, um, even though it was not by any means the best hospital in Bangkok, and there was not a single secondary transmission from that single person through Bangkok, even though there had been something like 276 secondary transmissions from a single person mm -hmm. in Hanoi, well, just Dan because they knew he was on his way. Well, as Dan said, there were, there were two major hospitals in Hanoi. One was the French hospital, which was a private hospital. The other one was a public hospital. The private hospital had aggressive pulmonary toilets. So you've got somebody who has an infection deep in their lungs, and you give them an aerosol under pressure, and you break up all these secretions, and then they come out, and you disengage, and all this stuff goes every which way. And that's where we had the greatest spread. Now, the, word, the woman who worked this out 
uh, who died about, oh, it's almost 10 years ago now, was Eileen Plant, who was there, looked into this in detail, uh, and sorted out, in fact, what was going on. One of the things that's, I think, very interesting about the SARS experience, and, and part of the reason that we're talking about SARS is because these folks, the, the professionals, at least the ones I've talked to, say that of all these scary viral diseases, certainly influenza and HIV have, have been enormously consequential and, and, and will continue to be. But SARS, which killed only about, I've seen 770 people and I've seen 900-something, but somewhere around there, killed, killed about 900 people of the 8,000 people that it infected, uh, which, is, which are not huge numbers. In, in this area, uh, but uh, colleagues of Dan and other experts around the world have told me that, well, if of all these, one of the scariest is SARS. That outbreak could have been much, much worse. We really, do we humans, really dodged a bullet with SARS. So I wonder um, to what extent it was luck in that case um, good luck, as Marin suggested, the, the role of luck. To what extent it was really good early uh, diagnostics? To what extent it was firm public health measures? And, and, and this is the point that I'm getting to that I'd like you to comment on. To what extent it was the luck of where this occurred? It came out of southern China. It got into Hong Kong. It got to the Metropole Hotel, the ninth floor of the Metropole Hotel. And, and the super spreader spread it to a lot of people. And those people got up and got on their airplanes to go home. Um, one woman went to Toronto with the virus in her. Um, somebody went to Beijing. Somebody went to Hanoi. Somebody went to Singapore. And then in those places, it was contained. It was stopped. Well, now think about those cities. Toronto, Hong Kong, Beijing, Hanoi, Singapore. Um, many of you have probably been to at least some of those. Those are all command and control cities with very firm governance and fairly to very good um, healthcare systems. What might have happened with SARS if it had emerged in the Oriental province of the Democratic Republic of the Congo and came to a hospital in Kinshasa and then maybe came to the Kinshasa airport. Might it have been very different? It may have. I think there's a couple, there's a lot in that comment. <laughs> but I think if you, in Toronto, they actually had two waves. And so they, they thought they had it over. And in fact, uh, we had the team that had gotten rid of it in Toronto come to us in Taipei and educate us on how they <laughs> had, had stopped it. But they ended up having a psychiatric hospital and some other uh, settings where there was ongoing transmission that was not known. Uh, and so they basically did not continue to detect or they weren't as vigilant and they had a whole second wave. And so I think there's a real lesson to learn there about you can't just assume something's over. You have to really keep monitoring it. Um, so I, I think you know, that, that clearly had, uh, it, you can't assume that it's going to be over. We had a case in New York. Um, and uh, this is a fellow who actually worked in my center for a while, who was Singaporean Chinese. He was here at an infectious disease conference. He became ill. He saw a hospital, uh, no, a hotel doctor, who told him it was good to fly. 
and he was en route to Singapore, and when he, received, when he got to Frankfurt, he was so sick that they pulled him out and put him into a PSL-4, located a containment at Frankfurt Airport. PSL-4, I'm going to ask you to define they, that. They put him in a high-level biocontainment in a, in a, in a um, you know, right there at the airport, right? There's a portion of the Robert Koch Institute, which is a very prominent area, Frederick Loeffler Institute, where they were able to put him into containment. So if he'd stayed another 14 hours in New York, we would have had a high risk of an outbreak here. So there was a lot of luck. But the point you were making earlier about Kinshasa, I think, is a good one. If you have a population that's immunosuppressed and you have a virus which emerges like this one, and it has time to adapt and become more efficient at, at you know, transmitting between humans, that would have been an unbelievably devastating problem for the world. So we, we are very worried about that, and that's why we have now, amongst other things, we have the international health regulations of 2005 that have been adopted by all the member states of the United Nations that says diagnostics and therapeutics have to be universally distributed. Now, in part, that's because it's the right thing to do. But it's also a bit selfish. It's because we also realize that if we don't stop it here, it's going to be here. You know, that's the other aspect to it. I think just in the thing about SARS, too, is that it declares itself when it's ready to infect. I mean, basically, when you get fever, then you are infectious. And that alone, I think, allowed us. And it's not perfect. Some people, I'm sure, were spreading a little bit. But it, if somebody got feb feverish, you could actually do something about that. You could put them a into a room, whatever. Uh, so it, it, it would tell us when we needed to do something. Flu and other things don't. They can transmit before they make us. They have symptoms. So you're talking about people shedding virus before they really get right. sick enough to have to go lie down. Right. For that very reason, we set up these fever tents and things like that, so people could, if they had fever, they would go to one of these tents. They would get a little swab for testing, but then they would be put into quarantine. And that I think that kind of work, plus the enormous amount of infection control in the healthcare settings really did have an impact on it. But for those viruses and bacteria, whatever, that do not declare themselves early in their infectious period, you're going to have a hard time controlling them. I want to shift a little bit. Uh, uh, Marin, it's your job uh, as a science writer for the general public and my job and the job of our colleagues to explain what these guys do to ordinary readers and to entertain them but also to educate them. How do you think we're doing, and what are the constraints against doing better? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, because I, I think we all have seen for the past, oh, it, it's been, how long has it been since uh, the coming plague and the hot zone were published? 16, 20 18, years. 20 years, yeah. Um, people love scary disease stories for probably, you know, reasons that I think go way back in our cultural evolution, they are they're sort of monster under the bed stories. They're the, the modern version of stories we would have told ourselves around a campfire. Um, so there's a tremendous temptation as a science writer to want to scare people because audiences respond to that. Um, but as a responsible science writer who wants not to create havoc, I, I often find myself w wanting to, uh, needing to ask myself to what degree I need to pull back from that um, to serve sort of the, the the greater good. 
And th there's a really interesting, this point comes up actually today uh, in a really interesting way, not today at our panel, but just a couple of hours ago, the New England Journal of Medicine uh, put live on their website I, what I think are the first two peer-reviewed papers about this novel coronavirus in the Middle East. Um, one is a Wait, case let report. Me, let me yeah. explain that a little bit more for people who haven't caught wind of the, the novel coronavirus. Ian knows this, this story much better, but he has limitations on what he can As say. it happens, the night of this event, Ian had just returned from studying this very virus in Saudi Arabia, although official restrictions limited what he could say. We were all just talking about SARS. SARS, it was discovered, was caused by a novel coronavirus, corona like a crown. When you look at it under an electron microscope, a it looks like it has a crown. So um, in September, uh, a gentleman of Qatari origin who had been visiting Saudi Arabia became very sick um, quite quickly with uh, what seemed to be pneumonia. Um, and his family were well off, and they paid for him to be medevaced to London. While he was being treated in London, you're, you'll fact check me if I get this wrong, right? Um, uh, the international mailing list ProMed, which is run out of Harvard, um, among other things, it was responsible for bringing the first report of SARS to the world. Um, ProMed ran uh, a note from a physician in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia saying that three months earlier, he had had a patient with a very fast-moving pneumonia who actually died, who also had suffered from what turned out to be a novel coronavirus, not the SARS coronavirus, a, a slightly different branch of this family. Um, so this has been of enormous international public health interest for about a month now. And it's been written up uh, by the WHO and by the CDC and by the European CDC in their um, bulletin, which is called Euro Surveillance. All of those are open access. You can find them. So um, tonight, the New England Journal of Medicine published the first two peer-reviewed pieces on this novel coronavirus. One is a case report on the first, um, that what turned out to be that first case, the case in Saudi Arabia, not the case in London. Um, this gentleman died uh, very rapidly of a very fast-moving pneumonia and renal failure. The second um, paper is actually an editorial written by one of Captain Dan's former colleagues, the former director of viral and rickettsial diseases at the CDC, who's now at Emory University next door. And the question that he raises, and this is, this is why this is a, important for science writers, that in, in this editorial reflecting on this new outbreak in the Middle East, which at this point doesn't appear to be going very far, though I'm sure Ian has much more to say about that, that he can't say. What Dr. Anderson, the author of this editorial, raises is that just in the past 10 or 15 years, if you go as far back as Nipah virus in 1998, then West Nile in the Americas in 1999, SARS in 2003, and then pandemic H1N1 flu in 2009, in each case, we found them faster. The genetic analysis was done faster, the, the um, characterization and description, and as a result, public health strategies were agreed to more rapidly. The problem with that is that the identification, the alarm over it, and the agreement to form a public health strategy, in some cases happened before we knew how big the outbreak was going to get. Now, in this case, that might be good because if something's going to happen with this novel coronavirus, we're really way down at the beginning of the curve. On the other hand, we might be getting alarmed a little too alarmed a little too fast. We well, might but, be... Yeah, oh, good. 
you know. Now Ian's going to jump so in. So <laughs> the reason the Saudis are so worried about this is that the Hajj is just weeks away. So you have millions of people converging in an area where there's a potential, if this is truly transmissible, human to human, of a serious risk. So it's the sort of thing that we faced, we faced, you know. So if you don't jump out and make a vaccine yeah. for this and you're wrong, then it's a horrific outcome. And if you jump, then you're accused of, you know, being, you know, chicken little and claiming the sky is falling. So we have to take those kinds of measures. We have to be aggressive about these things. So that's where the panel discussion ended. You're probably wondering, like many in the audience did, where do we stand? Or as one audience member asked, just how scared should I be? On the scarier side, Marin pointed out that it took the deadly 1918 influenza virus 11 months to travel the globe. SARS made the trip in just four days. But take heart, Captain Jernigan reminded us that science and technology have provided important tools. Detection is key, he said, and modern diagnostics can detect pathogens a whole lot faster. We also have vaccines and antibiotics. And don't forget, we live in an age of viral information. So while viruses might evolve to spread between species or people quickly, we have digital platforms for immediately sharing things like gene sequences, useful information from health surveys, research, and treatment options. So we have come a long way. That's it for this installment of the Science in the City podcast. For more, visit scienceinthecity.org or email us anytime at scienceinthecity at nyas.org. Thanks for listening.